Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. And I want to start with a gorgeous photograph, a colour photograph that's making the front page of the Irish Examiner this morning. And it is a photograph of what's been described as a pop-up jellyfish garden in Blarney Castle. And the, the idea behind this uh, pop-up garden is it is set to inspire and it is hoped that it will inspire a love of a jellyfish. The jellyfish garden, it's a new concept garden that has been created in an old convert storehouse at the foot of Blarney Castle and it was opened last night. It features a variety of special plants and bespoke artwork and it's all inspired by jellyfish and their role in the sea and it's set around a specialist aquarium that's home to a group of moon jellyfish. Dr Tom Doyle is quoted in the piece with Own English this morning. He's a marine biologist and he's a lecturer uh, in zoology at UCC. He said the pop-up garden, which, by the way, is only in place until next Monday. He's hoping it will help shatter some of the myths around jellyfish. He said jellyfish are feared and he said they're very much a misunderstood creature. The jellyfish garden aims to take jellyfish out of the sea and place them in a very different environment, a garden where we can compare them with plants and flowers so that people viewing them can see them in a very different and a positive light and he is hoping then that people will understand them better and as I say this photograph by Larry Cummins on the front of the examiner is just truly truly uh, stunning so if you're free and available at the weekend I think a trip to Blarney Castle because as I say this pop up jellyfish garden is only there until next Monday and there's another gorgeous picture actually it's inside in the examiner by Andrew Harris of a group of young children making the most most of the last few days of the summer holidays and it's Sophie Regan and Joe O'Shea Jack and Katie O'Donovan and Wirren Malumbi and they're at a lemonade stand in the village of Union Hall. <laughs> it seems business was brisk for these budding young business people uh, with passerby stopping to have a refreshing drink of lemonade and to buy some homegrown tomatoes and they've just a little table, handmade sign saying fresh lemonade for sale and they have the, you know, the jugs of lemonade and they've the, the plastic cups, little beakers and straws and uh, I can see the tomatoes are on sale as well but what I love in the middle of it is, is a jar that says tips So <laughs> well done, it's great to see uh, young children being uh, proactive and using their last uh, few days, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, picture, well done uh, to those young people in Union Hall, 0818 103 103 the Robert Troy controversy certainly doesn't seem to be going away and now 
according to the papers today, much of the focus is going on the Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, and he's facing a Fianna Fáil backlash over his failure to deal more decisively with the case of Robert Troy. Uh, according to a piece in the Irish Independent today, many Fianna Fáil backbenchers are dismayed at the way the matter was allowed to drag on for almost two weeks, causing serious reputational damage to the lead party in the government and of course this all comes amid a housing and an economic crisis and a cost of living uh, crisis and this uh, uh, contrast the, uh, and a number of the Fianna Fáil backbenchers are contrasting the way Micheál Martin has handled this compared to what he did in the early days of the coalition and in particular people are talking about the careers of two of Fianna, of Fianna Fáil party ministers, namely Barry Cowan and Derek Killeary. Remember what happened to them in the early days of the coalition in autumn of uh, 2020. Now it does seem that Derek Killeary, a former party deputy leader, government chief whip and former agriculture minister, he's among those tipped to fill the vacancies caused by Robert Troy's abrupt departure on Wednesday. Uh, others, by the way, have been speculated to replace the junior minister. A relative newcomers, uh, people whose names, you know, a lot of people might know. One is Deputy James Lawless. He's uh, Dáil Deputy for Kildare North. And the other is Neve Smith, who represents Cavan Monaghan. There are other names that are being mentioned. But the fallout from Robert Troy's forced resignation continues to build within Fianna Fáil. There was some personal sympathy for Robert Troy, who, who eventually uh, quit after what was at least uh, 10 days where there was toing and froing and different things being announced about his various properties, his 11 properties in total that he owns in uh, West uh, Meath. But the criticism now is very much being levelled at Micheál Martin with some TDs saying that the issue has implications for Micheál Martin's future as party leader, but they didn't go so far as to say there'd be a heave against him at the moment, but they say it is likely to happen in the new year. Now, the Taoiseach is signalled he will take some days to consider the replacement for Robert Troy. And unlike if this was a senior minister, um, which requires a doll vote, a junior appointment can be done by the Cabinet and the focus is now on next Wednesday's meeting of ministers. Many within Leinster House are saying Dara Killeary from County Mayo appears to be the most likely to be appointed at this stage. But the choice very much rests entirely with Micheál Martin, who obviously will have to consider things like ability, gender comes into a geography and also shoring up party votes. Others in Fianna Fáil see a strong case for Deputy James Lawless he is a qualified barrister, deep knowledge of new media technology and its governance. And he's previously been the focus of speculation for a high office. So it will be up to the Taoiseach, but he's in no rush. He's certainly not coming out today uh, to appoint the replacement for, for Robert Troy. But I imagine as well that every single politician who is a landlord, and there's some 80 of them, we're told, they, I, I take it, are frantically checking to make sure that all of their records are up uh, to date and that they've no, made no mistakes because they'll all be looking at what happened to Robert Troy this week and wondering, 
could they fall on the same sword? So I'd say it'll be frantic checking across this weekend to make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are uh, crossed. Amy Malloy is writing in the Examiner today of a rental property owned by a Sinn Féin TD by the name of Johnny Quirk and seemingly one of his rental properties was not registered with the RTB. Mr Quirk has four rental properties across the country. He's two in County Longford, he's a house in County Meath and he also has a property in County Galway. A search on the RTB's database of registered tenancies this week though showed that while the two houses in Longford and the house in County Meath were all listed. The house in Galway was not. So when the Irish examiner contacted Deputy Quirk for comment, he said the property was managed by a letting agency that had taken on responsibility for registration with the RTB. He said this property was initially registered. However, he says it has come to my attention that the registration lapsed due to an error on behalf of the lending agent. He said, as soon as I became aware of this, I immediately rectified it and the property is now registered again with the RTB. He says, I take my responsibilities very seriously and he regretted the error incurred. And as I say, there's going to be a lot of other uh, uh, TDs and senators in similar positions who will just be checking to make sure if a property is meant to be registered with the RTB, that it is. Some of your WhatsApps and texts uh, coming in, firstly on... uh, Hall Martin and the fallout from the Robert Troy uh, controversy. Uh, John says Hall Martin has to uh, go. He um, doesn't feel he has been a very good Taoiseach. That's according to John, one of our listeners. And uh, Ross says, well, there's much speculation as to who Hall Martin uh, will put in instead of Robert Troy. Uh, Ross is wondering who will replace Hall Martin. He feels the government are out of touch at the moment. 0818 And then I spotted a number of WhatsApps in about a programme that I have to put my hand up and say I haven't watched. But reading some of the comments coming in, it's a programme that I must watch now. I get it on the on the player. It's a programme that was on RTE last night. I don't know how many of you watched it called The Man with the Moving House. It's on a quarter past ten last night. It's the story of one man's crusade against a system that he feels simply doesn't work. It's the story of a small rural community threatened with wipeout. But it's also the story of how the bonds of community, a strong sense of identity and a deep love of place can generate a powerful energy within that fight. And the story surrounds a well-known musician and TV presenter, Brendan Begley. He was faced with homelessness in the village he was born and raised in and it's his battle with Kerry County Council for 15 years to build a home on the family land and it came at a massive personal cost to him, €25,000. And a number of our listeners watched it last night and thought it was brilliant just to give you some of the comments in on it. Michael in Castletown Bear says, RT's brilliant documentary last night, The Man with the Moving House, a man threatened with jail and a €12 million fine from planning authorities at last shone light at the end of the tunnel for rural Ireland. Rural communities, says Michael, are being wiped out, especially by the planning authorities. Our fishing industry, our farming is being wiped out, which is very much part of rural Ireland. Our culture and everything that's associated with rural life, especially by these so-called experts. Believe me, Patricia, nothing would be more fatal for any government of a country to get caught up in the hands of these experts. Expert knowledge is limited knowledge and the unlimited ignorance of the plain man 
who knows where it hurts is a safer guide than any rigorous direction of a specialised character. Excellently done by RTE. Thanking you, says uh, Michael. And I know exactly the point Michael is making when experts make these uh, decisions. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes these and on many occasions, these experts are based in Dublin and they're making decisions about a very rural area and an area that they've probably never even visited. They've, they, you know, they're looking at it on a map. And I'm always saying that it's the local people talk with the local people. They're the ones who know what's best for their area, not some planners who sit in in, in an ivory tower and as I say probably never visited the area and Anne in Ballin Temple says Patricia I watched that programme on uh, Brendan O'Begley moving house last night and it was brilliant imagine imagine she said he had to wait 15 years to get planning permission to build a house on his own family land it's disgraceful what Anne describes as stupid idiots within planning departments and what they're doing to people they should no longer have their jobs. They don't have a working brain, says Anne. Look at how much it's going to cost him now to build. Well done to him, Bula Boss. Um, and well done to RT for, for shining a light on it. As I say, it's one of those programmes, when I hear about a programme like that, that's where the player is brilliant. Before, if you missed a programme on TV, that was it. You had to hope that it might be shown as a rerun uh, maybe just a few months later in some cases but it's great now with the player that you can download it so I certainly will uh, watch it did anybody else watch it how did ever, uh, others feel about it the man with the moving house it was on last night at uh, 10.15 0818 103 103 John Paul's taking your calls you can text you can WhatsApp 0862 103 103 Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group promoter home business farm life and health insurance cmig.ie The schools begin to reopen around the country it seems thousands of families who use the school transport scheme are still waiting to hear if their children will have been allocated a ticket for the school bus. To discuss the concerns around school transport, I'm joined by Fine Gael Senator Tim Lombard. Good morning to you, Tim. Good morning. And you're very welcome to the programme. Now, Minister Norma Foley, the Minister for Education, announced earlier this summer that the school buses would be free this year. And that was really welcomed by so many families and it was all to do with the cost of living and everybody accepted it was a good move. But that has now directly led, hasn't it, to capacity issues? Yes. So basically the portal that's usually closed in April was reopened in July. An extra, I think, 44,000 people went onto the actual system itself and put their names forward for the school transportation scheme. And look, as you're very much aware, the school transportation scheme has all been under pressure. And I think we've often spoken this time of year about families waiting for tickets. Um, this year, it's beyond belief, the amount of families that are um, waiting for new uh, schools are going back today in some places. Most of them are going back uh, on Monday and Tuesday. And the amount of tickets that have been allocated and the amount of parents and students don't know whether or not to the school bus is just amazing. And there's a few issues around it. And I think one of the issues that I've came across is that talking to the actual operators of the service, so how the service works, is bus there and get the contract, and then bus there and get private contractors to run the room. <coughs> And so and 95% of <coughs> buses are operated by private operators, I read. Absolutely, absolutely. But one of the problems that the actual operators, the private operators have, is to make sure they can get competent, capable drivers who are guarded better. 
Um, so basically, these drivers would walk probably two and a bit hours in the morning and two and a bit hours in the evening. It's a certain kind of person, mainly retired people. But the bizarre scenario here is that Buff Aaron has instructed that anyone over 70 can't drive a school bus taking the children to school. Well, if the school was to contract school a bus operator to take um, the class to a match or to a play or to, or to whatever, a bus driver over 70 can do that because he's contracted privately with the school. So because of what Buff Aaron has done, they've taken a huge pool of people out of the actual system. And the knock-on effect is that the private bus operators that are trying to deal with the extra capacity can't get the actual cohort of drivers to drive the bus. So, and, and we've heard from some of those drivers o- over the years, as soon as they hit 70, and many of them fine, fit, loving the job, but because of these rules that are in place by bus airing, they have to retire as school bus drivers. Yeah. And that's the issue. And like we're on a really capable, uh, competent people. People have been doing this job for eight or nine years, mainly retired people. And it's a great source of income, but it's also a great source of interaction for them. So uh, they're very much involved. You know, they just love this job itself. And during the year, to help us here and along the way, Minister, um, Minister Hildegard changed the actual issue about a medical search. So you don't need a medical cert unless you're over 75 now, not 70. That's for all all drivers. All drivers. drivers. So we've gone out our way now to make sure that any implication regarding medical cert is now taken away. There's no need for that. So we've thought we'd actually this issue cleared up so we could get a cohort of people back into actually driving buses. But for some bizarre um, reason, bus there and haven't moved appropriately to actually solve this issue. And, and, and it, is a, it is a decision by Bus Aaron as opposed absolutely. to a decision by the Department of Education. Absolutely. This is a complete um, decision made by Bus Aaron. Bus Aaron are doing a solo run on this one. Uh, the pr- private bus operators that do private work can have bus drivers over 70, no problem at all. It is only Bus Aaron have brought this um, actual decision in. And you'd have to question, like, why or what is the logic behind this? It's ageism without a shadow of a doubt. I would really say I don't think it's appropriate. Like, 70 is probably the old 60 in many ways. Mm. And, like, you played a song there where they go from madness, and it is literally madness. <laughs> and I think that's the big issue here. Like. And, and only during the week I was talking about the number of uh, pensioners who are have gone back out to work or are gone back out to work, and there's a lot of them doing it because of the cost of living crisis. Absolutely, there's definitely as it gives them and it gives them interaction too. And talking to parents, I had it in the bus roll here lately last year. Like the older generation have the ability to communicate with everyone, and I think they actually get on really well as bus drivers. And they actually really become they know everyone, they know everyone's family. So they've got two generations, and that's the kind of person a parent wants taking your child. Yeah, yeah, they and feel they feel the con- confident uh, about it. So you're calling on bus Aaron. To, and and particularly this year of all years, Absolutely. to, to like look year, at it. Like we've never had a scenario like like I've spoken to you always about bus transportation. Like there's seventy seven thousand families out there on the school uh, portal. There's way over one hundred fifty thousand families now who actually avail of the actual school bus scheme itself. Never had with the issues that we have this year. We have schools that went back today that don't the children have been taken to school because buses haven't been sorted out yet. And it's an issue that comes up every year.
short drivers, these lads are well able to actually do their job. And the ironic thing here is they can do it in a private capacity if they're going to a match or to a play. Or yeah, that's what doesn't make any sense. That really just doesn't make any sense. And at a time also, uh, Tim, when you know the Greens, part of a coalition government, are trying to encourage people out of their cars, we are now forcing this year, we are now forcing families who are going to have to drive their children to the schools because we're talking about children who don't live within a walking distance of their school. Yeah, yeah and there's a certain criteria. You need to be roughly 3.2 kilometres away from the school so you can avail the school transportation scheme. And I think um, like we're literally forcing parents, and these are mainly working parents, parents that have other jobs too, trying to fit into a schedule. And they might have maybe two runs. They might have a primary and a secondary school in the time difference in between. And again, with some of the collection times, which are actually more awkward in many cases, it becomes the authority to actually manage their daily routine of tying it all together. And like we've brought forward a very confident scheme of reducing the actual cost. And I think that has been really welcomed. But now we just make we have to make sure it's delivered on the ground. And I also think when we have the monopoly of but they are running the actual entire scheme itself. There has to be a question mark here about do we need to go for tender for the scheme outside of Buffet Aaron because they seem to be running it as a bit of a cartel, like making up rules about them doing with with the really disrespectful them. When you take into consideration these stem can do it in a private capacity than any other bus driver. And as you say, parents are very comfortable with allowing their children on a bus with somebody that they've known who's been driving the bus uh, for the last number of years. I mean, I've heard uh, only during the week, I heard of one family where the mother says she's actually seriously considering giving up work because she said there's just no way she's going to be able to drop and collect uh, her children. I heard of another family who now say they're going to have to buy a second car in order to get their children uh, to and from school because, you know, the other parent takes the car, goes in in a different uh, direction. For people who normally get a concessionary bus mm. ticket and these are the people that are just outside the 3.2 kilometres are they opt to go to a different school are we are we as good as saying they haven't a hope of getting a concessionary bus ticket this year it all depends on the size of the bus so how bus they are run the system is they put at the size of the bus they put let's say a 25 feet around a route that that is if there's extra space they fill the route in afterwards uh, sorry they, they fill the bus so let's say there's 20 people that fit the actual criteria, the extra five are filled through a lottery system. What we've been doing over the last few years, we've been trying to coax in bus area to put a bigger bus onto a route with a more capacity for these people that actually don't qualify directly. So we've been trying to talk them into getting 52 feet of buses and then filling it in accordingly. Now, the big issue here will the bus area, they come back saying there's no problem with the buses, but the problem is trying to get drivers to these buses themselves. So we do have issues about capacity and it's about walking through the system and unfortunately it would take <coughs> maybe the second or third week to get all these issues started. <coughs> but, um, like but in the meantime, capacity, children have to get to school. Oh, completely. And I think that is, and the, the real issue here is the figures haven't changed. Like, it's not like we're coming across with huge figures in the month of April that we never came across before. We know where they've been for the last four years in school. We know what the first years are going to be coming through. So you're looking at a scenario that the six years are dropping off, the first years are coming through from primary school. So we have a really good base on what the actual core um, children for every route is going to be. And for that, I can never understand why it's the last week of August, or even the first week of September in most cases, yeah, that yeah. parents get the tickets. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've done this interview with you and with other politicians every single year at, at, at this time. And like, this is why I'm kind of saying when you start thinking outside the box, we, to, in many ways, let's get the 70-year-olds involved. They're competent, capable, and willing to do it. That then will free up the actual issue regarding driving the buses. And then we can actually try to solve the solution. But there is a bigger issue here. Like, bus airing has a monopoly of the system. And it literally is the last hour of the last day before things are put in place. That's not good enough for the family. Okay, and I know there was problem. We were hearing some parents uh, with the phone line trying to get through, and uh, there was. Uh, are you hearing those problems? Oh God, the phone line scenario of the last ten days. They published on their own uh, Facebook page and web page that um, a certain number to ring. Um, it has been impossible to get through. I spoke to one lady straight forty-eight minutes on hold, and she rang me on her mobile when she was on hold just to say what happened there. So it literally is waiting hours to get through. And these are parents uh, who are literally just ringing to say, is my Johnny going to get a seat on the bus? Oh yeah, literally can say it open today. She was ringing to see is her Johnny on the bus tomorrow morning. Or it's just morning. crazy. It's just, if you know, if parents don't have enough to be dealing with, with the back to school costs without this added issue, Tim, it's just yeah, not good enough. Not really. And it's a stress that these are hardworking parents trying to juggle everything, trying to get... You know, like the school runs in, the actual homework done, the work, the activities, like this is another headache that they just literally do it out. But unfortunately, it's the last week every year. And that's why we need to start reading people who runs the actual service itself. Maybe we need to start using that dirty word presentation because something needs to happen because this is just becoming a joke. Okay. All right. Uh, Listen, Tim, thank you for that. And uh, thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Good morning to you. That is uh, Fianna Gael, uh, Senator Tim Lambert, uh, particularly on that issue of allowing people over the age of 70 to drive school buses. And I, we, on this programme, certainly, we have had uh, some listeners who were school bus drivers who really were devastated when they hit the age of 70 to be told that they had to give up their job and were very much wanting to be back driving buses again. Now, Kieran, I reckon part of the problem also is that some of the private bus operators only pay the, a little over 10 euro, the minimum uh, wage uh, bearing in mind all the responsibility that comes with carrying people on a uh, bus, it doesn't make sense. Uh, Kieran reckons there should be a higher level of pay for bus drivers. 0818 103 103. John Paul takes your calls. Text WhatsApp 0862. 103 103. Cork today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Findings released this week from St. Patrick's Mental Health Services annual Attitudes to Mental Health and Stigma survey shows that there have been significant improvements over the last five years, but increased education about mental health and understanding its difficulties is still required to tackle the stigma that persists in some areas. Joining me to discuss this further is Professor Paul Fearon, who is a consultant psychiatrist with St. Patrick's Mental Health Services. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Patricia. And you're very welcome to the programme. Now, it seems during the pandemic, people were more accepting of their own and indeed other people's mental health difficulties. Uh, Why do you think that was so? Yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting phenomenon now, wasn't it, Patricia? I think essentially society had to come together and did come together during the pandemic from early 2020 and for a period, ongoing period of two and a half years now. We were all essentially in the same boat. 
I think it was realised very early on, apart from the physical effects of the virus itself, that one of the effects on all of us was the effects on our mental health. Um, and I think we all realised that off-quoted phrase, we're all in this together, that applied to our mental health as much as it did to, um, to uh, catching COVID. And I think we, we all saw that uh, during this period, there's been in, an increased dialogue um, of us being more open with each other about our mental health issues, um, either um, ones that existed already or ones that were developing around COVID. It was such a stressful period that it was almost, I won't quite go as far as to say normal, but it was very commonplace for a lot of us to have anxiety and, and other um, complaints during this period. So it became almost commonplace and acceptable in a way that perhaps it hadn't been before. Yeah, and, openly, and yet openly share it and to yeah. say, I'm feeling really stressed or I'm feeling very anxious. Yes. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. But the figures then for this year, less people talking about it. Well, yeah, I think it's important to put this into context, Patricia. We've been running this annual survey since 2018, and in general, the um, the findings have been improving uh, consistently up until this year. Um, I, we did our most recent survey uh, this year, just as the pandemic appears to be receding, so society's opening up, people are getting back to their nor- to normal lives. But certainly, in some areas, there appears to be certainly a stalling and maybe a slight regression in uh, in some of the uh, some of the figures. They're still better. I would stress than 2018 but maybe since 2020 there hasn't been as much progress as previously so for example when we asked people uh, would they be uh, would they tell others if they had a mental uh, health disorder that's sort of dropped back slightly since 2020 similarly um, fewer people are likely to uh, tell others if their children have a mental health disorder so we just need to keep an eye on this and not be complacent um, about uh, about the effects of stigma um, because it's such an important area um, and and does that stigma around mental health, Paul, does it stop people reaching out for help? I mean, it does, Patricia. Um, if you think either in yourself that having a mental health disorder is a source of potential shame or failure, or if you think society or friends, family, colleagues may think the same thing, then certainly you're going to be more reluctant to re- reach out for help. And of course, that's very important because mental health disorders are eminently treatable. So it's, it's always sad to see somebody who's delayed seeking help um, and they've lived with perhaps unnecessary distress. Uh, when if they'd, And we also know that the earlier you seek help, the better, um, obviously, the outcome is and the, the, the less time you're distressed. Yeah, so that reaching out is the first step towards In, recovery, isn't it? Indeed, it's an elementary step. Everything kind of flows from that. And that reaching out, it doesn't have to be your GP in the first instance. It might be, but it might be just the first step might be approaching a friend or somebody you trust or a family member just to talk about how you feel. Um, equally, um, if you have a family member or friend who you might think is struggling, to approach them sensitively and, and, and very generally in the first instance to ask them how they're doing and start a conversation. Often, pe- often people may feel reluctant or scared that if they open up a conversation they might make things worse but that's never the case if you do it in an open kind of compassionate supportive sort of non-judgmental type of way And would I be right in thinking Paul that people are slow to actually admit that they're taking antidepressants? Well that's improved actually Um, uh, about um, uh, 12% 12% of people uh, this year said they wouldn't tell anybody if they used antidepressants. So, but in tw- 2018, that was 20%. So there has been an improvement there, you know, and of course, saying you're on antidepressants is a proxy for saying um, you have depression or a related mental health disorder. One of the interesting things is that um, more people are um, uh, uh, this year 
had a colleague or a friend disclose that they had a mental illness. So people are talking about it more to other people. And that's and that's that's what we need because when I was teeing up that you were coming on the the program uh, today, I, you know, I made that point about you know if I've got an infection, I'll openly say to work colleagues, for example, oh, I'm on an antibi- I'm on an antibiotic, but people seem to feel different about saying, oh, you know, my mental health struggling a bit at the moment. I went to the doctor. I'm on antidepressants, and I'm feeling a lot better. That yeah. we, that should become more the norm. That should be the case. And it's really interesting, isn't it, Patricia? Because, you know, the oft-quoted figure of one in four of us at some point in our lives will have a mental health disorder. These are common disorders, eminently treatable. And, and yet there's still, and that's why tackling stigma is so central and crucial here because it's stigma that holds people back from talking about their uh, problems, about seeking help, and indeed telling others how, how well they've recovered after they've had that help. Mm. Because self-stigma, is, is that also a real challenge? I mean, people are afraid how others will treat them if they reveal that they're suffering from mental health issues. It is. I mean, it's, 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 I think it's a really tragic thing. That, you know, and in this year's survey, we found that when we asked people, um, would you regard having a mental illness or seeking help for a mental illness as a sign of failure in yourself? 22% of people, you know, one in five people said that they would. Yet when we asked the same question uh, about a friend, would you regard if a friend told you they uh, were seeking help for a mental health issue, only 6% of people said they'd regard it as a sign of failure. So it's almost as if we, 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 we judge ourselves by slightly different standards yeah, personally yeah. to others. Yeah, we'll always be more understanding of somebody else, but, but never, never of ourselves. Indeed. So we're getting better in our attitudes, but you reckon more needs to be done? Yeah, we're getting better. Things are improving, but we just must stop being complacent. Um, so we, we need to continue to fight uh, stigma. I mean, at St. Patrick's, we're very clear that everybody in society has a right to live a mental health, a mentally healthy life, and tackling stigma is central to that. Okay, well done. Well done. Listen, Paul, enjoyed our chat. Thank you for that. Thank and thanks much, for yeah. joining us. Good morning Thank to you. you. That is Professor Paul Fearon, who is a consultant psychiatrist at St. Patrick's Mental Health Services. Uh, once again, and how often have we spoken about it? It is good to talk and it's good to open up and it is not a sign of weakness to admit that you're struggling slightly with your mental uh, health. The more we talk about it, the more people will go forward and will reach out for help because that is the first step towards recovery. A lot of uh, people agreeing with Professor Paul Fearon, uh, who joined us from St. Patrick's Mental Health Service, that we need to talk more and only by talking more will we, re- will we remove so much of the stigma that is associated with experiencing uh, mental health issues. Jane says, Patricia, you're spot on. Uh, why can we openly say we're on an antibiotic for infection, yet we can't talk about being on antidepressants? And somebody else who was on antidepressants found talk therapy uh, particularly good. Help is there, but you need to reach out. More people will reach out if we get rid of the uh, stigma, we all need to be supporting each other. Uh, each other. Uh, thank you for those uh, calls and texts in. John Paul continues to take the calls. We're going to take a break. And in the next hour, we're going to be speaking about a fantastic book that's just been uh, launched, which looks back at 100 years ago this month with the burning and looting of Mitchellstown Castle. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Some of your calls and texts coming in. Now, we were speaking about the school bus, the school transport scheme in the last hour and the problems 
problems crop up every year but this year is certainly uh, worse than ever and uh, a listener and unfortunately this came in just as Senator Tim Lombard who joined us on the programme just as he got off the line but somebody said could you ask Tim did they not think this was the government did they not think that when they said the bus is free this year even the dogs on the street will be applying for a seat so next year when people will be asked to pay for their school bus a lot of people won't be applying again it's easy for the government to say free bus but how can any phone system cope with 44,000 extra calls and 44,000 was the number of extra people that applied for the school bus scheme now I know when you say the dogs in the street are going to apply the only people applying are people who are entitled to put their son or daughter on the bus but there's always been the case that parents opt not to put their children on the school bus and they drive them to school instead so yes as soon as they announced that they they were wavering the school transport fees this year and of course it was done to counter the cost of living uh, crisis everybody knew at the time that this was going to trigger an unprecedented number of applicants to the school transport system so I would have assumed that they would have known that that was going to happen so would you not take for that that they would have backed up the phone system by having additional people available they obviously haven't because we're hearing from people who just literally can't get through to find out if their son or daughter has a seat on the bus or not but I've real real sympathy for people who over the years have got one of the concessionary seats and these are the seats that are left over and they are given out to students who are not automatically entitled to a seat on the bus and many of these families would have paid for a concessionary ticket for years and they're the ones that are really going to lose out this year because I have a funny feeling there's going to be very few concessionary seats left and of course you've got to wait until all of the people who are entitled to a seat on the bus are allocated to then see if there's any seats left and then as far as I know it seems to be some kind of a lottery system then after that it doesn't matter I mean you could have families whose son or daughter is going into leaving cert and for the last five years have been getting and paying for a concession receipt on the bus and this year may be losing out. So it's putting huge, huge strain on uh, families. But you, you are right when it goes back to next year because it's only, it's, 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 we assume next year people will be back paying for the bus. Will there be as many people applying? Uh, no, probably not. Tim, thank you for your text. Tim in Mallow says, Patricia, listening to your piece on the school buses, I'm wondering, isn't the rule of no drivers over the age of 70 on a school bus a bit of ageism? Should it not be based on maybe the health the fit, and a fitness test rather than age? A lot of people I know in their 70s would put us all to shame, says, as does Tim Imalo. Yeah, and you are absolutely right. And it's one of the points that Senator Tim Lombard, who joined us, w- was making. There are a lot of very fit, active, healthy 70-year-olds. Many of them had been driving school buses, then were forced to retire at 70. Did they want to retire? No, they didn't. Um, and there's many of them and many others in their early 70s who are well able to drive a bus and would love the idea of doing uh, this type of work because, you know, it isn't a 40 hour a week. It's in many cases a little over two hours maybe in the morning and the same again in the afternoon. And it's a Monday to Friday position. It's only during school times. So it does suit a lot of people, but it certainly suits a lot of retired people. Will Bus Aaron uh, listen? Because I just think... It's, it is madness, was the phrase actually that Tim used because I just played the song from Madness that somebody, say aged 71, 2, 73, 
can drive, can, can drive up to the gates of a school today and maybe take an entire class who are going on to a match or going on to some kind of a, an exhibition and they can put them all on the bus and that person can very safely drive all of those pupils to and from wherever they're going. But yes, if that person wants to get on a and drive something that is a school bus which will take the very same students from the school but this time dropping them home not allowed to do it it doesn't it makes absolutely no sense and particularly back in February when Hildegard Nocton changed the rules for all drivers over the age of 70 not having to get a medical cert until they were 75 I thought when that was brought in I thought then straight away bus air and we're going to come back and at least raise the the driver's age from 70 to 75 but they haven't now whether they will uh, now I don't know we're just going to have to wait and see but I think this year more than ever because of the unprecedented numbers of people applying for a seat on a bus the buses are there we're going to need the drivers we're going to have to find them somewhere 0818 103 103 John Paul taking your calls you can text her WhatsApp to 0862103103. Still getting in calls about that programme that was on the TV last night, uh, The Man with the Moving House. And this was the uh, story out of Kerry to do with well-known musician and TV presenter Brendan uh, Begley, who was facing homelessness in the village where he was born and raised. And he got into a battle that took 15 years to try to allow him to build a home on the family land and uh, and there's a lot of people saying it was a fantastic programme that I'm definitely as they say going to try and watch over the weekend Uh, Anna Marie in Skibbereen was on she also watched the programme she said she agrees with Brendan and everything he had to say uh, last night she said it was great to see him taking a stand she said I know so many people where we live around the Mizzen and also friends out on the Bearer Peninsula born and raised in the locality they want to build a house and they can't or else they're made to go through huge loops with the planning department while when we look around everywhere we see are holiday homes it just seems so unfair and then the powers that be wonder why rural areas are dying it's because those of us who are raised in an area can't build a house are on the other side we can't afford to buy a house because if you live in an area that's deemed scenic which obviously when you're talking about West Cork a very scenic area every house just seems to be so expensive we can't afford a home in our own backyard houses have become so expensive it really really is frustrating and that was very much highlighted in Brendan's uh, programme last night and Pat in Formoy said um, I also uh, went to watch that programme last night but Pat's criticism of, of it was Part of the programme was in subtitles because Brendan obviously is a fluent Irish uh, speaker. Now, when he was speaking, our Gaelga subtitles came up. But Patton from Oi says he doesn't like to watch a programme with uh, subtitles. He feels you're watching the subtitles and then you're missing out on the images that are on the screen. And he said also sometimes the subtitles can go so fast. He's wondering, is he on his own with this? Or are there other people that just find it very frustrating when there's a programme that has either all subtitles or part subtitles? He wonders, could they not dub voices in over and dub in English over the Irish speaking parts? Do others agree? And is it a term enough for some people when they sit down to watch a programme that has subtitles. 0818 103 103 and can I just stay on I suppose that whole issue around housing and particularly housing in rural Ireland. Richard in Rathmore wants to know why we are putting bats 
ahead of much needed housing. And this actually is another story that's coming out of Kerry. It's a large scale housing development that was planned for Killarney Town and it's been refused planning permission because of the potential impact on lesser horseshoe bats flying to their roosts in the nearby Killarney National Park. Now it seems artificial lighting including during the construction phase would disturb the bats that commute along the Dina River in the Killarney National Park which is right alongside the proposal for this housing development. It's a 228 unit housing development and I'm told it's Kerry's first strategic housing development. It's on a 15 acre site just off the N71 Port Road right opposite the Killarney National Park. Now it it was to include houses, duplexes, townhouses, 152 apartments in three and four storey buildings. There was also plans to build a childcare facility and a large green area along with roads. The application had the strong approval of the council planners because obviously they know there is a shortage of housing supply in Killarney and also it had potential to facilitate pedestrians and cyclists. Now the applicants were our our Portal Asset Holdings Limited and they pointed to the suitability of the site, the fact that it was near to the town centre of Killarney Therefore, it was within easy walking distance for schools, for amenities, for the shops, libraries, the, uh, walking distance to hospitals, to parks and to other playground facilities. The mix, they say, would help to provide accommodation for workers in the tourism sector by having apartments in there. Uh, however, there has been over 50 submissions from nearby residents and others complaining of density problems with access overshadowing and some say on the impacts of the National Park. A number of senior public meetings had also been held but this lesser horseshoe bat, they roost around 600 metres from the site and the species were subject to disturbance from light. That was what was in the inspector's report. Now on Port Planola has now refused permission on the single ground of the site's proximity to the Killarney National Park McGiddy Cuddy Reeks, candidate for special area of conservation and its potential to disturb the bat population in the area. They say that the applicant had failed to demonstrate that there would be no adverse effect on the integrity of a European site and therefore the application was contrary to proper planning and suitable development. And it's been turned down, even though, as I say, Kerry, the planners at Kerry County Council were very much in favour of it. Will it be appealed? It probably will. But Richard Inrath Moore says we're now uh, putting the life cycle of a bat ahead of uh, housing. He is infuriated by this decision by on board Planola. 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. C103 Jobs. Physiotherapist is required for full-time hours in a busy private clinic. It's in the Newmarket area. Now, may actually suit a new candidate, 087-3382064. A welder slash fabricator is required for a busy workshop in the Newmarket area. Call 029-60019. Ward personnel, they've got vacancies for all types of carpenters. It's for work across the Cork region. Call 021 233 9120. 
and Inchidani Island Lodge and Spa. They've got vacancies for bar and waiting staff, a spa therapist, a receptionist, pool attendants, kitchen porter, house assistants and spa evening cleaner. Email eshepherd at inchidaniisland.com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Now, the century of the burning of Mitchellstown Castle, part of a wider series of events that occurred right across North Cork, 100 years ago in 1922 during the Civil War forms part of a book by writer and historian Bill Power who I'm delighted to say joins me this morning to talk about his latest book called Doomed Inheritance. Uh, Good morning to you um, Bill. Good morning Patricia. And uh, you're very welcome and firstly congratulations I have just been I've done nothing I think for the last week as I've had my head buried in your book it really is wonderful. (laughs) Now you didn't write this book over a weekend just as best you can outline the amount of research that you have to put in to get a book like this together. Uh, huge is, is the short word for it. It's not something that you can do overnight. And it's, I suppose my knowledge of this subject goes back to when, what, 40 years ago? Um, when I first started to get interested and you'd hear stories from different people. Sometimes the stories didn't ma- match the fact that I found later on. Very often they didn't, actually. Um but it just builds up and your knowledge builds up and you realise the connections between people and the, the relationships both in terms of family connections and political connections and other kind of connections. Um, and the more you go on, the more the pieces kind of fall together. And it, it falls naturally out of my brain at this stage because I just know it inside out. You have a passion for it. Oh, yeah. 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 But you'd have to. I mean, it's a subject that, first of all, the family are interesting and they're contradictory like all our families are. You have the good, the bad and the ugly in those families. You also have um, the fact that they created something absolutely incredible and it's been forgotten. And also they've created other things incredible like Mitchellstown, Kildare, Bellinanders, Kilbehany, Ballyperine. They built those places and that's forgotten in those places. Those t- towns and villages wouldn't have existed without them. Whereas if the castle was still there they would still be remembered. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, they're only gone, in many respects, they're only gone because the castle was looted and burned. Um, and they weren't given the opportunity, as happened, for example, in Capaquin House, where the owners got sufficient compensation, they were able to rebuild. That didn't happen in Mitchellstown. And that's to do with the kind of political feelings of the time as well, where when they were compensated, and uh, this was another dimension of it, that when the castle was burned and when places were destroyed and people's property were stolen, they were compensated by the state, mm. i.e. the taxpayer. So not only were we robbed of having these buildings and these structures of, of international importance, but we also had to pay for the privilege of losing them. And people don't realise that. No, you know, they didn't get anywhere near what they sought by way of compensation, but it was still a huge burden on a very new country that was essentially broke in its, in its early decades. That was trying um, to build itself. Trying as to a build country. itself. Yeah. And, and yeah. the devastation that was left in various parts of, of Ireland, North Cork in particular, in particular was very badly hit. Uh, the, of the 300 big houses in Ireland burned at the time of the War of Independence and Civil War, the, 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 a significant percentage of that is in North Cork. 
Yeah, and it's just what I what I've got annoyed reading your book, not with your writing, but um, it's just it's the senseless nature of it, which which we're going to try to get into um, during our interview today. But you you are at pains on the cover to say it's doomed inheritance. Mitch's Doncasa looted and burned uh, August nineteen twenty two. Not everybody likes to hear you use the term looted. Correct, because it is the truth, and the truth hurts. For long enough in Mitchellstown, and it's not just Mitchellstown, these things happen elsewhere as well. It's, it's, it's not unique to one place. The looting preceded the burning and there were other motives involved. I, I can recall many years ago um, when my book White Nights, Dark Girls came out 22 years ago, I was totally baffled by some of the reaction because the evidence didn't match the reaction. And I would say the same sometimes with this as well. Um, and I remember going to the son of a, a former, um, now deceased, Fianna Fáil TD and saying, look, Liam, this doesn't make sense at all. I don't understand. There's no evidence to say that there were bad landlords. And what he said to me was that when he was a young fella, he used to go around with his old fella and they'd visit all the diehard houses. They were Fianna Fáil. Um, and he said, basically, the, the, the bottle of whiskey was taken out from the TD. He, as a young fella, was given a bottle of lemonade. And he said, invariably around Mitchellstone, all the conversations turned to the burning of the castle. And he said, every one of them to a man admitted that the Kingstons were good landlords. Burning the castle had nothing to do with whether they were good landlords or bad landlords. It was just time to get rid of them. And then they had to come up with the excuse. But in Mitchellstown, you had the added complication that the looting became very extensive in maybe a week, two-week period before the castle was actually burned. And the fact of the matter is that Liam Lynch, who was chief of staff of the IRA, um, he, there, are, there is correspondence between him and George Power, who was officer commanding the um, Cork Number no. 2 Brigade in North Cork, where they're writing to each other about the strong room in Mitchellstown Castle having been broken into. This needed to be investigated. Power was instructed by Lynch to try and go out and recover the silver and return it because this was going to look very bad on the Republicans. Now, the failure of communication and, and the, the lack of, of honesty sometimes in these dispatches um, also indicates that power wasn't fully aware of who was behind what was happening and what was happening. And I think that he was being misled by his officers on the ground in Mitchell's oh, Yeah, and the extent of, of how yes, much because was, they been, were was being looted and stolen. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, so, uh, so can we, we conclude from your book that the only reason Mitchellstown Castle was burned to the ground was to cover up for the looting? Ultimately, yes. Ultimately, yes. It was, it, yes, there was bitterness from the land war. There was justifiable bitterness towards landlordism. I, I get all that. But actually, that doesn't account for the fact of what happened. It survived the War of Independence. Just, just think about that. And there was a, a short period of complete anarchy in North Cork. That anarchy really began in June 22 and extended its, itself into September, October um, uh, of 1922. And in that period of, if I take a specific period of about two weeks in August 1922, there was a phenomenal level of destruction across North Cork. Mitchellstown Castle was the only house burned in that particular period. Mm. All the other targets could arguably be considered military targets. Or the ten, because I know you're talking about the Ten Arch Bridge in in, yes. in Mallow, and you t- you told a story that I didn't know. The other bridge in Mallow, they they were going to try and blow that up, except the local priest and the local rector stood the rector on and it. The parish priest went on the bridge and led a vigil 
to and all the IRA if you're going to blow this up you'll have to blow us yeah and, and that's what saved the, the bridge that's what yeah. that's now you what what you've really captured as well in this in this uh, in this book uh, is what's lost to the area and and the, the the contents i mean it's absolutely magnificent looking at some of uh, the photographs um, t- okay, tell me firstly where how you you've how you some of these photographs you have yourself. Where do all the photographs come from and the paintings? Yeah, I've been collecting photographs for at least forty years, um, and one of the main sources is actually a large photograph album, um, which one of the family still has in London. He's Con Weaver, and um, there's probably about fifteen or twenty photographs in that. Um, these are large ten by eight photographs, and there are views of the castle that have never been seen before. I, I've been aware of them for over 20 years. I've, I currently have a loan of the album. Um, they're absolutely unique because there's views of the interior where we can see things in the interior and I know where some of them are, right? And Thus proving that looting took place. Yes. And also there are views of the exterior from angles in the domain that simply other views don't exist. And um, every photograph to me adds a little bit of information. For example, there's a very ordinary photograph in the book showing a section at the back of the castle. Um, there is no other view of that section. And it's, it's just showing the roof of a building and it's showing some walls. But when I look at that, I can see the coal that's still left there because mm. they didn't bother with that. And actually, that's the only, only little bit of the building still standing at the back of the factory is that section. Now, it's, it's in quite a ruinous state now. Um, but, you know, every photograph you look at, you learn something. Even take something like the gallery. Now, the gallery is quite a big room. That was 100 feet long, 22 feet wide, 36 feet high. And, and as I point out in St. George's Art Centre, um, our building in the interior, when, when you're sitting there, is 65 feet long. Mm. It's 20 feet wide and the ceiling is 36 feet high, right? But inside in that room, I have several photographs of that particular room. But every photograph tells me a slightly different story because they're taken from different periods where you see furniture has been changed or isn't there at all because they moved it elsewhere in the castle. So every, every photograph tells a story. And it, it's interpreting and understanding that, for example, there's, there's one photograph of the gallery where you can see electric lights yeah. hanging from the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. I know that has to be after 1902, yeah, because that's when it got electricity. Came, yeah. uh, uh, but the value of, um, I, mean, I mean, I'm looking at photographs of the, of the drawing room. I mean, you're talking Downton Abbey. It's just... Mm. Everything in those photographs, all of that furniture, the piano, the silverware, the clocks, the plates, uh, they were valuable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're looking for, for example, one of the paintings that, that uh, we use the phrase disappeared um, was by Gainsborough. Now, I know that Gainsborough sold between 20 and 30 million. I know of a location where, um, and I have to be careful here, where, the, where I believe there are paintings. Um, I know of paintings that were sold in the 1950s in Sotheby's that were believed to come out of Mitchellstown. And um, that's just the paintings. But then you start looking at the silver. I have seen um, items of silver that came out of the castle. I never say where I've seen them because the present generation isn't to blame for anything that happened 100 mm-hmm. years ago. You know, And I want to be very clear about that. Uh, if I had a piece of silver, I'd be quite happy to have it. Um, but equally... Um, you know, there were things like items of furniture. There's, there's one photograph in the castle that shows a piano. Now, I know where the piano is. But when you look at the other items in that room, 
you've seen items that were easily put under your arm and walked out the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the ornaments. Yeah, yeah. 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 Of course, plates, ornaments. Oh, it's that just kind of such, stuff, you know? it's just such a, a loss to, to the area. Um, it, it, it really is. It's, it's it, it, you know, it's heartbreaking. What about, would there have been historical records that would have oh, been yeah. destroyed? Well, I mean, this was the other consequence of, of losing the castle. We lost whatever records there were of Mitchellstone, ordinary Mitchellstone people, because what wasn't burned in the castle was subsequently burned in a fire that I know took place in King's Square when all the records of the estate were literally dumped into a fire and burned. And I know that because I interviewed a man, um, God, 30 years ago now, John Daly, who actually told me he was young for taking the objects that were thrown out the window at him and he threw them in the fire. We also lost whatever was in the castle. I mean, there were thousands of books there. So anybody who loves books to hear that a book is being burned. I mean, they would have been libraries. They would have been a library, yeah. I mean, I I knew of a house in Mitchellstown, not too far from where I live, that um, there was a significant collection of books in the house that were believed to have come from the castle. Um, And the person now, he's dead quite a long while. But, you know, these things were known in Mitchellstown. When I was a young lad, the adults talked about it. And as I've often been reminded, you know, adults forget the children have ears. Mm. You'd hear these things. As a child, you're fascinated. You have to be. Um, Do you think the items should be returned? I don't. It's a difficult question. I suppose if I was one of the family, I'd say yes. But I'm more inclined to say, what's the point now? Mm. Um, You have them. um, Yeah, it's something that happened 100 years ago. I would never suggest to somebody they give it back. That's a matter of your own conscience too, you know. Yeah, and you know it's it's lost from a tourist point of view. Oh yeah, well, there's two dimensions to Mitchellstone Castle, and you can say this of other houses. There is the tourism dimension, which obviously is business commerce of huge benefit to the country economically. We know what tourism is worth to Ireland, and we know, for example, what happened during COVID when we lost all the tourists and what that did to businesses. There's that dimension, but there is also the cultural and historical dimension. Mm. I have long argued that Mitchellstown Castle belonged to everybody. I have the same ownership of it as anybody listening to this programme. It was ours. It was built by Irish people. It was built by the rents of tenants of the Kingston estate. Why would you think it belonged to somebody else? It might have been in the name of somebody. But it was actually everybody who built it. When I look at buildings in Mitchellstown, I mean, uh, the the stonework in the castle, which which I was only thinking about this actually yesterday, the quality of stonework in the castle was phenomenal. You simply will never see a building like that put up in Ireland again. Yeah, it's it's lost to history. Because when, okay, so it got got burnt and that was just shocking, absolutely shocking. But the actual structure of the building was was still there. We could still have something like the Rock of Cashel, for example. But just some people might be unaware. Explain what happened then when what was left, the remnants of the building. The the building, first of all, it's it it was to put it in context. It's it was the biggest new Gothic house in Ireland. Its interior floor space was over an acre. Um, the front tower of the building was 106 feet high, 32.2 metres. That's the same height as the steeple in St. George's Church in Mitchellstown. That just gives you a sense of the scale of it. All this was built with cut limestone. None of that was burned in the sense that all that still stood after the fire. The fire destroyed the interior, you know, the, the interior and yeah. everything inside, but the, the building itself was left as a ruin. So the family, as they, as they were entitled to do at the time, they claimed £150,000 compensation for the destruction of the building 
and in around 20, 22,000 pounds for the loss of the contents, which was very small, really, when you think about it. Um, the state did what the state does, and it obviously had a responsibility to pay out as little as possible. So ultimately, um, there was in or about £20,000 paid in compensation for the contents. And the remainder of, of about 21500 was paid for the structure. But there was a condition put on it. The money for the, for the structure had to be used to build tenement houses in Dublin. Not in, in Mitchellstown. Cork County Council actually objected to that at the time because they felt it should be spent. But Dublin in got the houses. Dublin got the houses. The Alex King Harmon, who was the owner of the castle at that point, um, he subsequently sold those houses at a loss. So he got stung twice. So then, um, realising that he couldn't rebuild, and he did intend to rebuild part of the castle. Yeah, he was. The, he, he knew he could never get it yeah, back to the way it was. Uh, but and anyway, it was too big. For, yeah, you know, yeah, too yeah. big. I mean, practically speaking. Um, he was planning to sell off his own property in the Midlands. He had a substantial estate there that would have helped finance this. Um, but instead of being able to do all that, he then gave up the ghost. Um, part of the motivation in burning these houses, by the way, was that those involved knew that, that when the, the domains lost their houses, there was no purpose of the domain, therefore the land would be sold off mm. through the Land Commission. And that's what ultimately happened. But in the case of Mitchellstown, um, the stones of the castle were put up for sale for the building of monasteries and convents and schools and all this kind of thing. And um, the monks of Mount Mallory bought um, the vast bulk of the stones. Now, people are under the misbelief um, or the false assumption that Mitchellstown Castle stones were built Mount Mallory. They did. But they also built the, the Cistercian Convent in Glencairn. They also built the entrance to Rockwell College, um, which people would well, know travelling to Dublin. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, those big white space yeah, gates. Yeah. That's Mitchellstown Castle stone. Oh. Um, the bricks, for example, were used um, in the gardens of the Christian Brothers Monastery, in the Christian Brothers uh, Cemetery. Um, the, the bricks were used for building all sorts of things around town. Um, another building that was lost at the time was the workhouse, which was privately owned. The owners of that sold the site ultimately. They, they actually had, um, they were planning to put a factory into it uh, from, from a bacon factory and uh, a short making factory and a leather factory. And they sold all the stones of that to Mitchellstown Creameries. And anybody who's ever driven up to the powder plant is actually driving in those stones. And when you're driving the Clambell Road, <sighs> brick by brick, it was taken down. Now, by contrast, if you think, the workhouses in Mallow and Formoy became hospitals. Mm. So Mitchellstown lost that as well. And I'm just giving that as an example of the, the wider level of disruption that went on. And, you know, you'd have to say, what did we gain from it? And I, I honestly cannot think of anything that, that benefited us as a nation by burning a house like Mitchellstown Castle. Yeah. I can't and, think and of anything. And the one thing you absolutely show categorically in the book, there was no military no. reason to burn the castle. It was no, no military value. It, it was, and it was sheer um, emotion, which, yes, there's a war going on and there's a lot of bitterness and I get all that. But the British were now gone. This happened during our time as owners of this country. Um so you, I mean, I was amused recently. Somebody t tried to tell me the British burned it down. They weren't even here at that stage. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, and the local factors involved. Can, uh, you know, it's something that came very much home to me in the last year or two. How much the local factor in this determined the ultimate result. I I kind of come to the conclusion, and it's not a hundred percent there yet. But I think actually, even though Liam Lynch 
very much favoured the destruction of big houses and there's plenty of examples of that like Convermore and Ballyhooley Rock Mills not too far away from it I mean he would have actively supported that in retaliation to other things that happened in, lo- in the locality I can't find any evidence to say that he sanctioned the burning of Mitchellstown Castle and and again because it's important to understand the burning of Mitchellstown Castle was not an isolated event it does tie in with in the same 24 hour period the railway viaduct in Mallow being being blown up, um, uh, the military barracks in Butterfield, the two military barracks in Fromoy, Kilbert Camp, Moor Park Camp, Ballyvan Air Camp, they were all lost at the same period. And they were all, uh, you know, with the exception of the bridges that they blew up, um, and even those could be argued as military yeah, objectives. Yeah, because it was getting troops. Yeah. Um, the, when you see the destruction, um, you again come back to why was Mitchellstown different to all the other targets? And the, and the difference was there was a local factor involved in it. I mean, we have, we have um, on the day the cast was born, we have de Valera travelling between Mallow, Mitchellstown and Fermoy. And as he's proceeding, becoming more and more disillusioned. And um, by the time he got to Fermoy Barracks, where he um, had tea in the officers mess with Liam Lynch and some of the other officers there, um, he essentially argues with Lynch, if you can't hold a single town, how do you expect to win a republic? Because that was the day that Lynch had decided they were pulling out of Fomoy and de Valera just discovered they were going to burn the two barracks. So it's a very pivotal part of the Civil War, obviously then coloured by the fact that on the same day in Dublin, Arthur Griffith dies suddenly mm. and 10 days later, Michael Collins Collins, is shot. Yeah, yeah. So all, all, all in the one month, all, all yeah. in the one month. But it, as you say, you know, while the castle was very much part of our past, it should have been very much part of our future and of that's course. what people should have seen uh, at the time. And the, 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 the title, Doomed Inheritance, very mm. apt. Well, it, it was the title of my master's thesis was of 20-something years ago. Yeah. Um, and I kind of parted, I was going to use it at another stage as a title for book and then I decided no, when I got to this one, this was the one that would, would hopefully say it all in the sense that photographs in this, I've, deliberately not published anywhere up to this book. I wanted to keep certain items for this book. Um, and the other thing was that I suppose I want people to be aware of what was lost. We can't undo it. It's gone. That's that. Um, but people need to be aware that, that there was wrong and right on both sides of the civil war. Yeah. The the conference we had recently in Mitchellstown, um, we had some members of the King family, the Earls of Kingston's, um, and they really don't understand it because they haven't been brought up to this. They, they're not. I don't get a sense of bitterness because, remember, this was their home. They had lived there for 200 years. It was land that they acquired through marriage. They weren't Cromwellians or any of that kind of stuff. They acquired it through marriage. And for them, it's a home that they they feel they perhaps should still have. And I know there's different views to that, but sometimes we have to take off the kind of bit of Republican in all of us and understand it from the human dimension. This was their home. They were turfed out of it. They had everything they had stolen off them. And then the house was burned. Have they family members buried there? Um, yeah, on the, on the 12th of August just passed, um, the 11th Earl of Kingston was buried in the Kingston Vault in Mitchellstown. Um, it was a private funeral. I was one of the people at it. Um, and his sister was there for that. Plus, uh, I suppose the the more senior local, or the more senior member of the family present, was Viscount Kingsborough, who's a guy in his twenties, um, who was brought up not knowing that he was a viscount, not knowing that his father um was an earl or is now an earl, 
Um, and he only discovered it when he came home from school. He was in school in, in uh, New Zealand and um, came home one day when he was 10 or 12 and said, told his mum that we have, you know, we were given this project in school to look ourselves up in the internet. And it says that I have a visa account. And she didn't know what she, he was talking about. And then she realised, mm, Charles, no, you don't have a visa account. <laughs> You're a Viscount. Oh, and that was incredible. the first that he knew. So that's they weren't brought up story. to notions, Listen, it's, as we say. It's, you know? it's a brilliant book. And we've I've literally scratched the surface in in my chat with you today. On sale locally, as they say in Oga Bookshops. Yeah, um, if I may dare say, there's yeah. there's some great shops that have supported my stuff down the years. The favourite of Mitchell's down, Phillips and Mallow, Hanley's and Formoy, the bookshop in Formoy. Or just give me a tinkle. Um, um, if people want to give me a ring 87 that's 87 I'm happy to, to it know. is it is well well worth the read and congratulations to you because as I say the amount of work uh, and and dedication but your passion for the story oozes oozes out of every single page so we wish you luck with it uh, Bill and uh, we thank you for joining us in studio this morning thank you that's uh, author and um, historian Bill Power Court Today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie you're listening to Court Today on Replay phone and text lines are currently closed a couple of things that I just want to mention for fear that the last hour of the programme always flies by and there's things that I wanted to mention and I didn't get a chance to squeeze it in. There's a couple of, of things that are happening this weekend that I really, really do want to mention and ask people to please uh, support. There's a fundraiser for Marymount Hospice in Ballynoe Community Centre. They're actually hosting a GAA exhibition which has been presented by Dennis O'Sullivan from Ballynoe and it's happening tomorrow Saturday between 11am and 4pm. There's a large collection of photo albums, a large collection of ladies' football material. They've audio cassette recordings of hurling and camogie uh, matches. And also things on display will be like match programmes, signed hurleys, jerseys and lots, lots more. And they'll have a collection box there for Marymount Hospice. So that's in Ballynoe Community Centre tomorrow between 11am and 4pm. And tomorrow also is there is a family fun day that's been sponsored by the Active Kindness page in Mallow. That's happening at the Arches Bar in Mallow tomorrow. Events will get underway at 12 noon and it is on until 5 in the afternoon. There'll be music, lots for the children to do, teas and coffees light food it's going to be a raffle on the day and if you can't go actually you can get tickets uh, by buying them online through the Mallow Act of Kindness uh, page and they'll have a draw at about half past three and a celebrity guest appearance tomorrow will be the gang from Murphy's Law that's Stephen his mammy Irene and uh, David uh, they will be there between three and five now all money's raised from that family fund day in the arches going to the Mallow Search and Rescue Lachine's House that's the wonderful suicide prevention programme and Cahill Horgan uh, Cahill Howrigan my apologies that we spoke with earlier in the week he's fundraising for his new prosthetic uh, arm so a fun day for all the family in the Arches Bar tomorrow okay just want to get those out of the way now I mentioned the bats um, I mentioned this was Richard Inmat Moore had contacted us because he was raging and fuming to hear that on board Planola have refused planning permission for a large scale housing development that was proposed to be built in Killarney uh, town out at the full approval of the council's 
planners but it went to our board Planola because there was a number of local people that had objected I think to the scale of the development but one of the main reasons that on board Planola turned it down was to do with uh, the building works and then the subsequent development its disturbance to bats it seems artificial lighting including during the construction phase would disturb the bats that commute along the river in the Killarney National uh, Park and it uh, because of this bat population it is the lesser horseshoe bat and they roost in Killarney National Park but this is part of their flight path which would be through where the where the houses were to be developed and uh, on that uh, grounds uh, Ambor Panola have refused the application and uh, Richard and Rathmore is making the point uh, you know why are, why, why are we putting the lives of bats ahead of much needed housing now you will have environmentalists who 100% will agree with Ambor Panola on this and say that these are our bats and our bat population and they need to be protected and it's for the greater good and all of that but I know some people find it very hard to understand when we have a housing crisis and I know people certainly in the Killarney area I imagine will be very disappointed because the proposal here was for 228 units and a lot of houses that were going to go into this 15 acre site and there was houses, duplexes, townhouses but more importantly there was 152 apartments to go in and part of that obviously were going to be used to provide accommodation for workers in the tourism sector always a problem in any area where that gets much bigger and its population grows during the tourist season you always need to have accommodation for the people that need to work in that tourism industry so obviously having the apartments that would have solved part of the problem with housing people that work in the tourism sector so there'll be a lot of disappointment in in the Killarney area over this but also as I say I can see it from the other point of view you'd have environmentalists saying on board Planola are right Michael says Patricia here we go again with this Killarney story we have people again listening to the experts telling us how bats fly at night Object, objection then to building much 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 needed housing a disgrace is not strong enough language to use here what next I'll say it again the 1963 Planning Act needs to be torn up and rewritten immediately if not uh, sooner and please not by so-called experts and I suppose it ties in with what we started the programme talking about which was that RT documentary that went out last night on the man with the moving house and that story was out of Kerry as well the man fighting the system to build a house on the land where he was born and raised his family land and the efforts that he had to go through to get finally get uh, planning a permission 0818103103 an issue that we addressed last week and I think the week before on the programme is making the papers uh, today and this is to do with the Warren Beach in uh, outside Roscarbury in West Cork Irish Water officials according to David Forsyth in the Examiner today have denied that water pollution that requires the red flag no swim noticed at the Warren in West Cork they say it wasn't due to a failure of the local wastewater tank the popular beach was closed to the public on the 15th of August now at the time what happened was 
the lifeguards on duty spotted what they said was a suspected sewerage plume in the water and obviously when they see something like that they get everybody out of the water they put up a warning up on Facebook and they raise the red flag which means then that the beach was closed for a number of days due to public health uh, concerns. Now responding to claims that the issue was caused by an overflow at the Roscarbury Onahinsha wastewater facility Irish Water said investigations into the source of the pollution had proven inconclusive but they say there was no overflow at the wastewater plant and that the pumping stations in the area were operating normally at the time. Now local Fianna Fáil uh, TD Christopher O'Sullivan told a meeting of locals in Roscarbury that concerns about the wastewater treatment in the area needed to be urgently addressed and he said what was very clear from talking to locals is that while the area is open for business the existing wastewater treatment infrastructure is simply not fit for purpose and he went on to urge Irish Water to take immediate action but a spokesperson for Irish Water said the investigation into the cause of the plume was inconclusive. They say the treatment plant, the plumbing station were all operating as normal at the time of the event and they say there was absolutely no overflow. Irish Water currently has no plans to upgrade the wastewater treatment at Rasgarbri Unahinsha and that piece of the statement will certainly not go down well with local people. Concerns about water quality uh, on the beach of course have increased following the loss. This year they lost the blue flag uh, status. Now Louis Duffy Director of Cork County Council's Environmental uh, Department. He said the Warren wa- unfortunately wasn't eligible to apply for a blue flag this year and that was due to the impact of heavy rain last year. But they are hopeful if all goes well this year they should be able to regain the blue flag next year and that was a massive disappointment locally that it lost its uh, blue flag. Louis, Louis Duffy said that uh, because of climate change more extreme weather incidents that can affect water quality at Cork Beaches unfortunately should be uh, expected. But anyway Irish Water adamant that uh, it wasn't the the whatever went wrong at the Warren wasn't anything to do with an overflow at the waste water treatment plant and that the pumping stations in the area were operating normally. But they did come out and say it was it they it proved inconclusive. So nobody knows where the pollution came from, which obviously isn't the news that the local people and the visitors to the area want to hear. Oh eight one eight one oh three one oh three. John Paul's taking your calls. You can text our uh, WhatsApp to oh eight six two 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. There's a Kaylee going on in the Marion Hall in Ballinhasic tonight. It's on behalf of the Ballinhasic Community Development Association. Dancing starts at half past nine until half past twelve. Admission to the Kaylee, 10 euro, including teas. And there's a couple of bingos on this today this evening bingo in Mallow GAA complex that's at 8.15 tonight they have a jackpot of 2,500 euro while Kildallery bingo will be held in the old store in the creamery yard tonight doors open at 7 with eyes down at 8 and they're still continuing with the option to play inside or outside in your car they've got a jackpot this week of 800 euro and tomorrow Saturday the Eugene Cronin Memorial Walk will take place 
Office. Registration is at Bantry Tourist Office at 11am. Free event with donations on the day to Bantry Hospice. All are welcome. And your last chance to see the Ahakista Fado exhibition. It's an exhibition of old photographs of Ahakista this Saturday and Sunday. 2pm to 5pm at The Cabin. Now, The Cabin is located beside a Rundle's Bar. The exhibition was curated by the Ahakista Community Association. It's part of this year's festival and I'm told well worth a visit. And a fundraising barbecue in aid of Clonakilty Hospital will be held tomorrow Saturday between 6 and 9pm. It's in Fairs Bar in Shannon Vale. Music is by The Dancing Priest. Plus, there'll be a bulls competition. Great fun for everyone. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Castletown Roach National School is running a fundraiser to complete building works for a breakfast and homework hub. And they also hope to build an occupational therapy playground. To find out more, I'm joined by the principal of Castletown Roach National School, and that's Owen Bracken. Uh, Good afternoon to you, Owen. Good afternoon, Patricia. How are you doing? I'm very well, and you're very welcome uh, to the programme. I suppose start by telling me a little bit about this uh, room that I believe you've been working on over the summer. Sure, we have. And it's really kind of culminating in, say, at this stage now, uh, everything's coming together, more or less coming out once, I suppose, really, OK, before the start of the, the, the new school year. But um, look, it's something that we decided to put uh, our minor works grant towards. Um, we have a lot of space here at the school, OK, right? And we, we cited uh, an area that we felt we could, uh, we'd say, establish a, a breakfast hub there and uh, a possible homework hub there also, we'd say, for the school. So look, um, there was there was a, a, a commitment, we'll say, from the board of management to make this possible. Okay, so we've tried to do that over the summer, and uh, we're ninety five percent there now. Uh, big big push to get ready for the, the new school year, but we're nearly there. Well done. So you were able to access some funding from the Department of Education. We did, we did on, on an annual basis. We do get minor works money, okay, right, from the department, and uh, I suppose uh, they, they cut uh, the board loose. I suppose to go and spend that in in whatever way they see fit, we'll say, for, for the school. So, look, uh, in, in previous years, we would have established a, a sensory space at the school and uh, that has been exceptionally well received and, and has made a wonderful difference to kids, we'll say, at the school here. Uh, it's incredibly uh, popular, actually, amongst the kids and we had a competition for the kids to go and, and, and uh, name the actual room. It's called the Zen Den, is what it's called. Okay? Well so it's, it's, it's a lovely space for the kids at the school. Uh, we would have used minor works money to, to establish that, we'll say. And uh, like that, look, we, we as I said, we, we identified a, a homework uh, hub and... and uh, breakfast room okay, that we want to try and establish using this year's funds. So that's what we've dedicated that money towards. And did I also read that you're hoping that the room, you might be able to make the room available for the local community? Well, look, Kamir, exactly. It, it will be a learning space. Um, we, we, we do have the world of books here at the school and stuff. Um, so it will be partly a library also where we'll have the, the books on display and where kids can actually come and enjoy reading there. But uh, we also hope to make the space available, we'll say, to, you know, uh, it could be retirement groups or... You know, we've had an influx of, of a, a number of Ukrainian families, we'll say, in more recent weeks and months. And, you know, it would be an ideal place to go and host uh, English as an additional language courses. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. well stuff done. There, you know? Well so, done, well uh, done. Yeah, we, we, we'd open the doors to... Yeah, to you're, really like th- you're really thinking outside the box. And then your plans for this OT playground. Talk to me about that. Yeah, well, the, the OT playground, I suppose we identified another space, we'd say, at the school. Um, it, it was a green area, we'd say, that the, the kids, uh, I suppose, were being asked not to use it, we'll say, and, and walk on it. But look, they, they found themselves chasing balls down there and stuff like that. Um, it was quite a secluded area, we'd say, at the school. So we said, you know what, um, there was actually an enhanced minor works grant uh, for the school this year, okay, right, due to COVID. 
and um, schools were advised to go and use that in whatever way they wanted to. We were, we were asked to go and buy HEPA filters if we felt that there was need for them. Um, and we've decided to, to put this money okay, towards actually establishing a, an outdoor play area. Um, it will be an occupational uh, therapy area, okay, and, and uh, the, the hope is to actually have occupational therapy equipment, we'll say, there. So there'll be an in-ground trampoline, for instance, and climbing frames and swings, that type of stuff. But uh, right now, we're going to be using it, we'll say, as, as, as a playground, but it will be an incredible resource to, to kids, we'll say, going forward also. Um, that, you know, we, we, do, we have kids on our enrollment okay, right, that would hugely benefit from, from such a facility, you know. So, mm. um, yeah, that's what we're hoping to establish also with that enhanced uh, okay, well uh, done. Well, well, well done. I, and how many, what, what size school, how many pupils do you have? We're, we're handy enough in size. We, we had 90 last year. We've got 90 again this year, you know. So we've got 11 kids going out and 11 kids coming in. <laughs> um, our, our numbers are growing, uh, you know, even if it's by one, we'll say, per year almost, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we, you know, we're, we're, we're stable and uh, there, there are many families that are moving into the area. So hopefully we'll, we'll get their kids also. Um, how many, how many staff? Um, we've got five uh, teachers in total, okay, one SEN teacher and four classroom teachers. Um, and then we've also got some SNAs, two SNAs who the school would fall down without, uh, two wonderful women and uh, an, an incredible help to myself and my colleagues. Um, so you're, you're, a working, our, our, our you're, you're a working principal, are you? I am, I am, I am myself, I am. And, uh, or you a know teaching what, principal, I shouldn't say working principal. <laughs> All principals work really hard. But I always, I do feel for the ones... The, the teaching principles, because you've got all the you've got the teaching job to do, but you've got all the additional work that goes being with the principal. Well, look, I'm not being one to complain. I, I, I love it. I love it, I must admit. I love being able to make a difference best we can. Um, I would also miss the teaching. OK, right. You know, um, y yes, it's a busy station, I suppose, as a, a, a working or a, a teaching principal. But uh, I, I got into teaching in the first place because I just didn't really enjoy making a difference and, and, and uh, helping kids. So. Uh, I would miss that if 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 my uh, if 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 my duties ever did change to full time administration, you know. So how long how long are you principal? Uh, since 2019, 2019 uh, here since 2019 September of and uh, it, look, it's been less than straightforward. I suppose with COVID, you know, <laughs> uh, not being a, 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 yeah. a, a mourner, but it, it, there, God bless the poor kids. They've had to put up with an awful lot of social distancing and masks and windows being open and corridors being wind tunnels and all that you know so and they've done they well absorb everything that they get you know, so. and you you've a talented bunch at the at the school you've got you've produced they've produced uh, music raps and, and and videos they have they have um you know what our, our, our talent uh, how would i say is boundless i think here I've, I've been so blown away by the kids okay whether it's uh, for score or for in, in GAA, in athletics, um, but but you know what, they, they also, their skills extend to the softer side of things also, okay, the arts, and uh, we would have had workshops with the GMC Beats, that's Gary McCarthy, fantastic guy. Um, he's brilliant, he's did, brilliant. He's amazing, he's yeah. an amazing fella, and, and uh, I, I think he's actually doing a workshop, I think, in the city, I think, over the weekend, but uh, look, we, we, we had him out to the school here twice for two wonderful workshops. And what the kids actually composed and recorded and compiled and set together was, was phenomenal. And they composed um, it. Is the, the, the Ashwood kids in the school composed it. They did. They yeah. did. Uh, Gary Gary uh, facilitates this, but the kids really do put the nuts and bolts together. You know what I mean? They, they compose it. They come up with the lyrics, the title, the subject matter, whatever it might be. And and then, they you know, they go about recording, you know, so. Okay, uh, I have a couple. I have a couple of clips. This firstly is the, this is the first and second uh, class. It's 
super, super. Okay, I, this... I, I do love this. It's, it's real fighting talk. Here we go. Yeah, Let's let me play this set. That is fight and talk from first and second class. And then fifth, fifth and sixth class. Let's take a quick listen to them. Don't want to let the ball hit the pole. Get moving. Get outside and get moving. What you doing? Get moving. Get outside and get moving. Don't fall back. Get moving. Get outside and get moving. Well, that's got a great message because that's what we all need to do. Well done. And and you've set up an, uh, on the idonate.ie uh, website. People can donate and by donating, you send them on a copy of what they've recorded. We do. We do. Uh, if, if they visit, we'll say, pardon me, there's a beeper going on in the pack, background okay. here. Now. It'll be gone in 10 seconds, two seconds. Okay. Uh, pardon me. Uh, if people do donate, we'll say on idonate. It's literally, it's a matter of just, um, I suppose, searching on the web, idonate.ie. Uh, and there's a, 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 a fundraiser that has been established there for Castle Down Roach. It's the only one for Castle Down Roach at the minute. Uh, if they click on that, they can make their donation and in return, they'll get a thank you message from I Donate, uh, at which they'll, they'll get a link and they can download all of those songs. And, and not great. just the, the, the song itself, there's actually a, a music video for the 56 Last Kids as well that they went and uh, that recorded also with the help of, of Megan Hales, uh, a music uh, or a video producer also. Because it so, is hard, Owen, for, you know, a school with, you know, not, 90 pupils fundraising is hard it, it is it is and, and you know what look you don't want to be going back to the well we'll say the whole time look in fairness to the, the parents association and the parents and and the wider community they've been phenomenal okay um you know in the year so far we're after raising well over five and a half thousand euro i think closer to six thousand euro we'll say at this stage um but you know what look you you, you don't want to annoy people either by by constantly asking and uh you know God, just to turn it loose on, on, on the general public, you know, the fivers make the tenors and, and the tenors make the twenties, you know what I mean? And twenties uh, make the differences, I suppose, yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, for the kids. Fantastic. You know? So, so uh, yeah, okay, everything so would be much appreciated. So you're actually in the school today, are you? We are. Yeah. It's a hive of, uh, of, of uh, activity at the moment. There's a man power washing outside with a tractor. <laughs> <laughs> There's a chap uh, installing a a water dispenser in the school at the moment and our teachers are in, our dedicated staff are in as well, getting ready for the, the school year ahead. And so, the, you, uh, when are you no back? Time. When are the children back? We're back next Wednesday. Next, next Wednesday. Wednesday we're okay. back. Uh, we're back next Wednesday. We're coming back as a staff on Tuesday. Okay, but, listen, uh, have, a, have, a, have a fantastic a new academic uh, year. We wish you luck with what you're hoping to achieve at the school and uh, congratulations to the, those children. They really are a talented bunch. And Owen, thanks for taking time out to talk to us today. Not at all. An absolute pleasure, Patricia. Right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Good afternoon to you. That is Owen Bracken, uh, probably to the children known as Mr Bracken. He is the principal of Castletown Roach National School. We wish them well. It, it really is tough on the smaller schools. You know, if you've got a big school with three, four hundred pupils, fundraising has tendency to be a little bit easier. I'm not taking away from it. It's hard no matter where it is. But I think those small rural schools uh, really do struggle when it comes to fundraising. So well done to everybody in Castletown Roach who have been supporting the local national school. Now, just let me wrap up with some of your texts that are coming into the uh, programme. Hi, Patricia. Could any of your listeners tell me, please, if you have a fruit wedding cake in the fridge, do you need to keep it in a cake tin? If you have a fruit wedding cake and you're keeping it in the fridge, 
do you need to keep it in the fridge? How long are you planning on keeping it in the fridge? Anyway, uh, fruit wedding cake. Somebody wants to preserve it and keep it as fresh as possible. If they're storing it in the fridge, does it need to be in a cake tin? We need somebody who's good at the old baking or somebody who has preserved. Does that tradition still happen where people used to keep the top tier of the wedding uh, cake and some people then might go on and use it as a christening cake? I don't know if that tradition still happens or not. But advice on the storage of a fruit wedding cake. Wants to keep it in the fridge, should it go into a cake tin? Let us know, please, if you can help us. Hi, Patricia, could you tell me, will the lump sum fuel allowance be paid this uh, Wednesday? No, it won't. I can tell you that the fuel allowance payment is paid the last week of September. You have another month to wait. So around the week of Monday, the 26th of September and that week on, and it'll be paid the same day as your usual weekly pension or uh, benefit, unless you've opted for the lump sum payment. If you've opted for the lump sum payment, that gets paid in two lump sums instead of the weekly payment. First lump sum of 462 will be paid in the last week of September with the second lump sum to be paid the first week in January. So you have another month on that. couple of calls in on other issues that we were addressing today on the school transport system and how there's more children want to get on the school bus than there are buses uh, to accommodate them. John says the conditions for a 55-seater bus, a big uh, bus, on some of our smaller roads in North and West Cork is simply a recipe for disaster. If they're stuck for resources on the school transport, why will they not use the local link service instead? Would they have enough buses to be able to do that? Uh, I wonder. But John, at least you think outside the box. Let's look at look at every single alternative that might be out there. And on the bats stopping, putting an end to the 228-unit housing scheme in Killarney, Catherine McCroom said, could they not build those houses somewhere else in Killarney? There are so many derelict buildings. Could they not use some of the derelict buildings, do them up? Instead of going into a, an area of scenic importance, if we keep going the way we're going, we will lose all of our wildlife. So Catherine McCroom is very much backing on board Panola and their decision to turn down the application for the development. And Dan and Balan Hasek said, I wonder, did Kerry County Council collect all of the derelict fines over the last number of years instead of going after that man in that programme last night, the man with the moving house, Brendan Begley? I have no way of knowing if they did or they didn't. OK, that's just some of your calls and comments coming into the programme today. 0818 103 103. John Paul continues to take your calls. You can text or WhatsApp 0862. 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103. Just a couple of uh, traffic incidents uh, to report. There was an accident earlier this morning at St Mary's Road in Middleton. Gardaí are at the scene of what they described as a serious accident that occurred on St Mary's Road in, in Middleton and the road is closed with local diversions in place. That's on St Mary's Road in Middleton. And we're also getting reports in of a small accident on Bridge Street in Mallow. But most of us are advised if you're driving in that area to drive with extreme care as there's oil on the road and uh, there could be delays to traffic and Gardaí are at the scene. Let's turn our attention to movies. Mark Malone uh, joining me this Friday afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Mark. 
Hi, Patricia. And you are welcome to the programme. OK, two movies uh, to review today. One is called Bullet Train and the other is called uh, Luck. We're going to start with a clip of Bullet Train. OK, here we go. Batman, what's wrong? I'm not the only one doing a job on this train. You don't remember me. You look like every white homeless man I've ever seen. Really? On August 5th. Something else going on here. I was waiting for us in Kyoto. Fate. You stab me? Enemies. We need to come up with a plan. Become allies. When we get off this train, we work together, or we die alone. Maybe there's a little head trauma? Maybe. First thing I've noticed, that's Staying Alive from the Bee Gees, from Saturday Night Fever, isn't it the soundtrack? It is, and you get three different versions. Uh, you get it in Japanese, you get it in English, and <laughs> in something else, I can't remember. But I know that there are three separate versions uh, of the song, which is great to hear, by the way. Actually, there's a moment at the very, very start where Brad Pitt is walking along the road and you see his feet, just like John Travolta ah, in Saturday Night very Fever. very clever, very which clever. I, which was a, a nice little touch, yeah. Um, I, I can say right now, I don't think you would particularly be particularly of this film, uh, Patricia, because it's extraordinarily violent. Because ah, that's oh. the way modern movies are made these days, I'm afraid. That's me gone, but it's a comedy. <laughs> well, in the, it's a comedy in the sense that it's a comedy like Deadpool. Did you have you seen any of the Deadpool films? Uh, no, no, they don't float my boat at all. Exactly. So I don't think this might not uh, as well. Very kind of kind of animated kind of you know cartoon violence, but it's still incredibly violent because it's directed by uh, David Leitch, who uh, directed John Wick, and he also directed uh, the second Deadpool uh, film. I don't know why modern films feel have to be this kind of explicit, but after Deadpool, it was almost like everybody went right. Okay, that's what we're going to do with action movies now, and people are just going to you know die in some extraordinarily violent ways, which is a bit of a shame, I think, because um, look, it's a strange film. You know what I mean? It's a very frustrating film, like a lot of modern films, for me anyway, in that there's so much good and there's so much bad uh, in this. Now, I went to, to see this with the daughter. We went to see it on a big Max screen. When we came out, I asked her what she thought of it. And she said, you know, that's either the best film I've ever seen or the worst film I've ever seen. I can't make up my mind. And I know exactly what she means because it's all over the place. You know, it's punctuated with brilliance and it's punctuated with just absolute stupidity. And it's such a shame. But... Look, if if you like kind of manic, crazy violence and people, by the way, like again in modern films, get stabbed, get shot, but they still manage to survive, which is kind of extraordinary. I mean, people in movies seem to be kind of almost kind of like, um, I don't know, sort of like godlike kind of uh, bodies, which may, which are, are able to withstand extraordinarily amounts of kind of violence and then continue on, which is part of the joke, I suppose, uh, of the film. So we meet Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt is an, an assassin and he wants to retire. Oh, by the way, the interesting thing, too, is that this film and the second fall, both films deal with bad, bad luck because Brad Pitt feels as though he doesn't have any luck. Um, he communicates through uh, his earpiece with Sandra Bullock, who's kind of his boss, and he's told to go on this train, which goes from between Tokyo and Kyoto in uh, in uh, in Japan, to retrieve a suitcase which has $10 million in it. And um, he goes aboard the, the train, but the problem is, is that he's not the only assassin on board. There's a number of others from all different kind of parts of the world who have all come onto this train for what seems like different reasons, but it, all the stories at some stage kind of come together. 
a number of them are, are very interesting. That's the one good thing I think the film uh, does get right is its characterization, which is one of my criticisms as well with a lot of action films. But here we get to know, for example, the twins who are played by Aaron Taylor-Johnson and Brian Ty Tyree Henry. Uh, they play the characters of Tangerine and Lemon, and they're both London gangsters, straight out of lock, stock and two smoking barrels. So there's a lot of this kind of talking, uh, you know, on the train. And, then and they're like, called uh, Tangerine and Lemon. Yeah, they play twins, even though they don't look at all like each other. And they're the best thing in this film because they're very funny and interesting. And what's good is that I think the film does manage to kind of give us their backstory and tells us more about them. As the, and as as a, uh, that's the case with a lot of the characters. That's the one thing where this film I kind of gets it right. Joey King, for example, she plays a character called Prince, and she's like this mad kind of schoolgirl who just kind of poisons everybody. You've got uh, characters like Michael Shannon plays White Death. You've got um, Andrew Koji who plays. Mura, uh, who's a, a Japanese assassin, and he's on the, the train also just to kill, basically. And so, well, but, but I think, see, one of the problems with train films, I think, is that they can be very claustrophobic, but something like Murder on the Orient Express would work, for example, because the storyline is full of kind of twists and turns. This is just basically a bunch of assassins trying to kill each other on a kind of a, on, on, on a train. There's a huge amount of uh, CGI, which kind of spoils it for me. You just know that they just did it in front of uh, green screens, and so um, there's way too much CGI for my liking in it and just the violence is just constant and for me that's where I kind of got pretty bored by it and the film is two hours eight minutes long which is actually the journey between uh, I believe Tokyo and Kyoto it which is kind be. of interesting um, so that's interesting so there's a lot of stuff that's really fascinating and interesting about the film there's a couple of um, kind of star cameos which is kind of interesting but the film constantly kind of disappoints you there's there are scenes of of brilliance in this film. And I think this is what my daughter meant when she thinks it's either great or terrible. And that's the problem. There are times when um, the film kind of elevates itself into kind of brilliance and you and, and it elevates your mood and you go, yes, this is fabulous. And then you got to sit through some terrible nonsense. So it could have done with an awful lot of cutting. I think if they just dropped back on the violence just ever so slightly, I could think uh, everybody could have enjoyed the film, but that's not kind of the reality of it. Brad Pitt is great in it. He did most of his own stunts and uh, he looks to be having a good time which is good so yeah it's a bit all over the place some uh, critics have been very sniffy about it and say it's just absolute rubbish and uh, there are a lot of people out there who like it uh, me and my daughter we're right smack in the middle we think it's it's good and it's bad in equal measure but it's set completely on the moving train it isn't well yeah. it's not a retrain obviously yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's, yeah. a, it's a set yeah. in front of green streets <laughs> okay but for nothing for, for no other reason I'd go along because I do like Brad Pitt okay mark it out of 10 <laughs> Um, that's not the reason to go, <laughs> Patricia. Um, I'll give it six. Six out of ten. He's easy on the eye, if nothing else. Okay. Now the second movie, as you say, is 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 about it's it's about luck, and it's called Luck. This is described as an adventure comedy. It is. It's an animated film. It's uh, the first animated film from a company called Skydance Animation. Now, Skydance have been making movies for quite some time, but now they want to move into the world of animation. And they've done that with the help of John Lasseter. Now, John Lasseter used to work with Disney Pixar, left for reasons which uh, I won't go into. He went over to Skydance, and this is their first animated film, and that's the first one that kind of he's been involved with. He also brought a number of uh, animators uh, from uh, um, Pixar with him uh, to Skydance to produce this film. 
called Luck, which is about this young woman who doesn't have a great deal of luck. And um, the thing is, is that we, we see there's a lovely kind of um, sequence where, by the way, she gets up in the morning and we see just how her bad luck kind of manifests itself. Uh, she'll toast her jam. Uh, she will drop it on the floor and, of course, it will drop and fall jam down. Mm. Uh, she gets locked into the bathroom, for example, and she just everything kind of goes wrong for her. She's desperate to kind of get good luck. And whilst walking along the street one day, she meets this cat. And um, this cat drops this lucky penny. So she picks up the penny and her luck just completely changes. The problem is, is that she drops it down the toilet. So she goes in search of this cat. Now she meets this cat and it's a black cat uh, voiced by Simon Pegg. Now, apparently, I didn't know this, but black cats in Scotland are lucky. Did you know that? Yeah. You know, a black cat crossing your path is always lucky. Well, that's meant to be bad luck, isn't it? But in Scotland, apparently, it's good luck. I and thought, so Simon, Simon Pegg plays this with a Scottish accent. <laughs> no. And uh, Sky, uh, Simon Pegg plays this with a Scottish accent. And uh, he's been very, very much criticised for that, uh, by the way. Even though he's played a Scotsman before, he did it in Star Trek, of course, where he played uh, Scotty. Uh, and so, but he's, she sees, uh, so she decides to follow the cat to try and see if she could get another lucky penny from the cat. The cat then goes through this kind of weird kind of vortex into Lucky World, and she goes in there as well. Now, Lucky Girl World is very green because it's referencing, obviously, the luck of the Irish. And so, therefore, um, the colour palette of this film is all different kind of shades of green. It's like, it's like Wicked, <laughs> Patricia. Yeah. And um, it, it looks absolutely beautiful, it really does, and it's populated by all these leprechauns, um, <laughs> voiced mostly by Americans, who's... Um, I've noticed with a lot of Americans when they do Irish accents, it's kind of Scottish. Mm. You don't really quite get it right. Uh, one of them, uh, the character of Jerry, is at least uh, voiced by an Irishman, an Irishman by the name of Colin O'Donoghue, and his voice is obviously the the best of uh, the the um, of of the, of the accents there. So basically, the film then goes into really, really complicated, once again, very Pixar-like existential kind of kind of complicated story. And it's always been my criticism of of, um, of Pixar, where I often think that they're so desperate for critical acclaim, they forget who the film is for. And I think that might be John Lasseter's kind of influence. The film is way too complicated for its own good. When it goes into, apparently when they go into Lucky World, there's Unlucky World as well, which is underneath. It's almost kind of like uh, Stranger Things in the Upside Down world, uh, where then they produce luck or they produce bad luck and then send it out to the world, which is really complicated for kids. And I don't think, I think they'll have problems with that because there's so much exposition in the film. There's so much kind of explaining the story and explaining what's going on and what they're doing. And it's almost like they forget about the film because after the film, I thought to myself, did I even smile or laugh once? Uh. And I didn't. I didn't laugh once throughout the whole film. It's almost like they forgot the comedy. They forgot the entertainment because they were so desperate to tell the story, the story of how bad luck is, doesn't exist. It, you know, you make your own luck. Luck is just part of that. Bad luck is just part of life's kind of um, color. And um, and so it's, it is quite disappointing. The film looks beautiful, I have to say. I mean, it really does. It's beautifully animated, like a lot of these films are. It is over two hours long, which is way, way too long. A good voice cast, though. Whoopi Goldberg is in there. Jane Fonda is in there. John Ratzenberger, who, of course, was Pixar's kind of lucky token there for a long time. He, and it's good to hear him as well. There's one great character of Jeff the Unicorn in it, who is voiced by Flula Borg. And I really like that character. I thought that character 
character was the best thing in the film. Now, some critics have said this is the worst film of the year. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's that terrible. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't really quite succeed in what it set out to do. And I think once again, like Pixar sometimes, they forget who these films are for. They're for kids. Maybe young kids will enjoy the colours, they'll enjoy the leprechauns. The rest of us uh, will find it difficult. Thank you. OK, so mark that out of 10. I give that a six as well. Six out of ten. And I'm also told the black hats are a symbol of good luck in Japan. If they cross your path, you'd said you can take control of your own uh, luck. I've always gone with it there for good luck instead of bad luck. Anyway, thank you for that, Mark. Have a lovely week. You too. And we'll talk again next week. That's Mark Malone, our movie review. That's where I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul, Nick Witcher. Talk to you Monday on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.